1 Corinthians 15, uh, writes extensively about the resurrection. It's the greatest chapter outside of the Gospels that, that really ties in, fills in for us the truth and the reality of the resurrection and, and what that means for us here. So we want to take some time, look at a few verses in this chapter. I'm not going to go through the whole chapter by any means, but let's start right here in chapter 15 and right in verse 1 as we pick it up where, where Paul is giving some instruction teaching to the church at Corinth, and he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, but which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Verse 5, And that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Let's hope that's not the reality today in this service here. But he's talking about those that have passed on, died, right? After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. So Paul take some time here with this church of Corinth, and he's been having to give a lot of instruction, teaching, correction even, with some of the things that they've been doing, some of the things that they've been believing, and he takes some time here in chapter 15 to really tie into and focus in on the resurrection and the, 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 the real point and reality and truth of the resurrection, what it means for us here today. But what he does, first of all, is he lays out the very basics of the gospel. He starts right in and he just lays out the simple truth of the gospel. That word gospel simply means good news. And Paul says, before we talk about anything else, I just want to lay out the, the, the foundation of the good news that we have. And there's no better news than we can hear than the news that Jesus has risen again from the grave and life is found in him. So Paul breaks this down into kind of three components, three parts here to the good news, to the gospel. He says, first of all, that Christ died for our sins, right there in, in verse um, three, and that he was buried, and thirdly, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. These three components are very basic, but they are life-changing for us. So Paul says that Christ died for our sins. Why did Jesus have to die? Because sin brings death. The result, the, the penalty of sin was just that. It was death. The, the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages, the cost of sin is death. So sin brings death. Jesus died for our sins. In other words, in order for sin to be dealt with, to be removed, death had to occur. Death had to occur. We deserved to die that death because we were all guilty of sin. Notice it doesn't say Christ died for his sins. It says that Christ died for our sins. Every single one of us were guilty before God. Every single one of us were born into sin and stood guilty before God. Our sin needed to be dealt with. It, it required death. And Jesus came in and he died that death in your place, in my place, so that we would not have to go through that ourselves. Christ died for our sins, but then Paul says that Christ was buried. Christ was buried. Now, there's a lot of people 
critics of Christianity, that love to try to explain away the resurrection of Jesus by saying that Jesus never really actually died. That there was no real death, so that when Jesus was seen afterwards and looked like he was resurrected, it was not a great miracle. It was no resurrection. It was just he never really actually fully died. And there's other things that many critics will try to say to explain away the, the power of this miracle and the, and the proof of this miracle. How do people try to dismiss or discredit the resurrection? First of all, like I said, they'll say he never really died, that he just fainted on the cross. That Jesus never really experienced death, but he just kind of went unconscious. Never really died. But now let's look at that a little bit closely because understand something that is there are Roman guards there. If anybody was taken off the cross, apart from having been killed because the Romans did that to criminals, Jesus, remember, was falsely accused, never guilty of anything, but was tried as a criminal. For, any, for the Roman soldiers to take anybody off the cross apart from dying, it would have been at the expense of their own death. They would have been punishable by death if they allowed somebody to survive the crucifixion. The Romans knew exactly how to inflict the most punishment and how to execute people. And so it would have cost the Roman soldiers life if Jesus never actually died. Secondly, people like to try to explain away the resurrection by saying that the disciples actually just came and moved the body of Jesus. That, you know, the empty tomb is simply explained away because the body was just removed and taken at the hands of the disciples. Now that's very intriguing and interesting because as you remember the disciples on the night that Jesus was being tried when he was arrested, I mean, they all became chickens. They're all freaking out. They're all running. They're all fleeing. They want nothing to do with this. They're looking to hide and protect themselves. And now you want to tell me that after Jesus is taken and put in a tomb, that these disciples who are all fleeing and hiding are filled with boldness to go up against Roman soldiers who are guarding the tomb. And once again, if anything was, uh, it was allowed to happen to the body in the tomb, the Roman soldiers would have faced the penalty of death. So these trained military men, you think a bunch of country fishermen, for the most part, are going to come up against these Roman soldiers and actually overpower them and take the body away? That doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. And secondly, if, if the disciples were the ones that stole the body of Jesus, why would they be willing to preach this good news that Jesus died, rose again, knowing that it was all a lie. Would they have been willing to face persecution, suffering, beatings, and ultimately martyrdom as many of them received? Would they have been willing to go through all that if everything they were about was just a made-up lie? It, it doesn't add up. It's not reasonable to think that the disciples just stole away the body. Some say that the disciples only thought that they saw Jesus that it was actually just kind of like a hallucination. They were so filled with just wishful thinking like, Jesus, are you going to rise again? Oh, let it be. And they're just walking around. Suddenly they're just like with such wishful thinking, just imagining that they're seeing Jesus. That's how some people try to say it was just a hallucination. Now you can imagine if it was like one person that, you know, comes up with this story 
You know, you can kind of go, well, I, I get how maybe you kind of are imagining this. Maybe, you know, Peter's like been out in the sun too long, been around too many fish, and he's just not thinking straight. He's like, I think I saw Jesus. And the disciples are like, well, I, I wonder, could be, maybe, probably just, a, probably just a dream, Peter. But it'd be imaginable if it was one, but he's not just seen by Peter, seen by the 12. And then as Paul records in verse 6, that after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. That's one mighty hallucination. That's a miracle in itself, that all these people are hallucinating over the same thing at the same time. It's not reasonable to think that this is just a wishful thinking, imagining, or hallucinating that they're seeing Jesus. Now, you'd have to reason that these people, over 500 at once, are seeing the real deal, the resurrected Jesus Christ. Some also try to explain away the resurrection by saying it was the Romans or, or maybe the Jewish religious leaders that were against Jesus, that, that took the body away. They want to have control of this body and, and not allow any kind of resurrection to happen. They took the body away. Some will try to say, oh, that's why the tomb is empty because it was the, the, the officials, the Roman officials or Jewish officials that did it. But again, that doesn't seem to add up because as Christianity began to grow and grow exponentially, and this movement began to spread out and really take over, you would think if the Romans or the Jewish leaders who were against Jesus wanted to stop this, all they'd have to do would be to produce the body. Hey guys, what you're all being told, what you're all living for is all just a bunch of phoniness because here's Jesus, he's not alive. They could have produced the body, but that didn't happen. None of these things happened. The reasonable conclusion is that Jesus died and he was buried. Just as Paul writes here in verse four that he was buried, that's important because you don't bury a living person. You bury somebody that has died. Those that took Jesus to this new sepulcher, the tomb, they took Jesus down off the cross and they prepared his body. They wrapped him in linen, it tells us. They put the burial spices in. These two that were taking Jesus off the cross, if there was any chance that Jesus was still alive, do you not think that they would have realized it and seen it? They would have maybe seen the chest starting to rise or, or fight for breath. Maybe they would have seen his body wincing after touching some of the wounds and dressing him in the linen cloth. They would have heard a, a, a sound or something. Surely they would have seen if Jesus was dead. But all four Gospels record that these men came, they took Jesus off the cross, they wrapped him in linen cloths, burial spices, and they placed him in that tomb. Surely they would have known if he was alive. They would have seen the evidence that Jesus was dead. The burial happens to set the stage for the greatest event in human history because without the death and burial of Jesus, there can be no resurrection. And that's what Paul moves on to say at the third part of this gospel, that not only did he die, but that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This was no mere resuscitation. This was a full-on miraculous resurrection. For three days, Jesus was in the tomb and then he rose again. This was a complete miracle of God. Now, we see a couple times here, we see it at the end of verse three and at the end of verse four, that all these things, these components of the gospel is, as as Paul points out, were according to the scriptures. Now we know that in the Old Testament scriptures, as Paul would have been alluding to, 
You have passages that would have spoken about the, the death of, of Jesus Christ and, and how he would die. Psalm 22, for instance, Isaiah 53, Zechariah chapter 12, all speak about this kind of way that Jesus would die even before crucifixion was even heard of. It was, it was being spoken of and prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come and die. We have scriptures that speak about that according to scriptures. But where do you see it mentioned in the Old Testament that he would rise again the third day? There isn't exactly a, a specific reference to Jesus rising in three days according to the scriptures, but we do have many great pictures and allusions to that. Abraham, for instance, Abraham was called to take his son, his only son whom he loved, Isaac, up on Mount Moriah, Genesis 22, a wonderful, great chapter. Abraham is called to take his son, the promised one, his only son, up on Mount Moriah to be sacrificed. This is the son that, that, that God said, Abraham, through your seed, through your son, the nations are going to be blessed. And now Abraham's being told, you want me to take this son out? I don't have any other kids. How is this promise going to be fulfilled? If I did this, doesn't add up. But Abraham went in obedience. And it tells us in Genesis 22, verse 4, that on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Three days that Abraham was walking with his son, he saw his son as a dead man walking, as though this life was over. Three days. And then it tells us in Hebrews 11, verse 17 and 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So for those three days, Abraham was making his way to Moriah with his son, thinking this man's dead, but uh, God's able to raise him up. After those three days, God can raise him up if that's what God needs to do. I don't need to discount God. And so Jesus sees that in the, or, or is, is seen in that picture now of Abraham and Isaac. Jesus also used Jonah as an example of his own life that would be placed in a tomb for three days when in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we see that the resurrection of Jesus three days later is right in accordance with Scripture. And it is a well-known event in history that is not reasonably disputed. Great, great historians, even non-Christians, wrote about the validity of the resurrection of Jesus. Have you come to know the reality of the resurrection for yourself today? The reality of the resurrection, there was a man that went on a trip to Israel with his wife. And his wife was a bit of a constant nag, a bit of a pain to him at times. And while they're there on tour in Israel, his wife passed away. And the man went and spoke with the undertaker, the, the caretaker there. And the caretaker said, well, we can have your wife uh, sent home with you to be buried at home. It's going to cost $5,000. Or you can have your wife buried right here in the Holy Land, and it's only going to cost you $150. And the man thought about it for a bit, and he said, you know what? 
I better have my wife sent home and I'll have her buried at home. And the caretaker was a little bit surprised. Like, you want to spend $5,000 to do that when you could have her buried right here in the promised land, in the Holy Land for only $150? And the man replied and said, well, long ago, a man died here. He was buried here and he rose again three days later. I just can't take that chance. That's somebody that believed in the power of the resurrection right there. So we've looked here at the proof of the resurrection. We've seen the proof of the resurrection, but now let's look at the power of the resurrection as we jump over to verse 20 now of 1 Corinthians 15. I hope you're still there. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Paul had spent some time at the beginning of the chapter laying out for us the, the proof of the resurrection. Now he simply states here in verse 20 like it's just kind of a, a known given fact, an undisputed, undisputed fact. But now Christ is risen from the dead. That's all he says. But now Christ is risen from the dead. It's known, it's understood. And then to see that, as Paul says, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, those that have passed away. Those that have died. Christ has become now the first fruits. Now that's significant because in the Old Testament, there were various Jewish feasts that they would observe. Three days after Passover came the Feast of First Fruits. And that happens actually to be today on the Jewish calendar. We celebrated Passover this weekend. Today now is First Fruits. Now what's important about First Fruits? First Fruits was when the people would gather their crops, the, the first of the harvest. They would bring in the first and they would bring it to God as an offering as a sacrifice, in a way of saying, thank you, God, for what you have brought. And it was an opportunity to declare with faith that they believed there was more to come. Because when you have the first of your crops, you're kind of going, some people might want to, you know, kind of hoard that, right? And go, oh man, I don't know if there's going to be more to come. I'm going to hold on to this. I better cherish it, make sure that we're going to be fed. But they took the first of the crops and they brought it to God as the first fruits to say, Lord, thank you for what you brought us. And we believe that there is more coming. That's what Jesus has become for us as the first fruits of the resurrection. It's revealing to us that he's the first of the resurrection, but there's more to come. We all get, as people that have put our faith in Jesus, get to be beneficiaries now of that resurrection. That's the hope that we have now. That not only does Jesus rise again, we are going to rise again one day. All of us needed that hope of resurrection, that, that power of the resurrection, because we were all under the constraints of death. You see, Paul says something here. Notice this in verse 21. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. See, by one man, Adam, sin and death came into the world. We're all born into this. Now, some of you might go, man, I don't like that. That doesn't sound Fair. Why do I need to suffer because of what one man did? Why do I have to be guilty now because of one man's sin? We look at that and we go, that doesn't seem right, God. Oh, but God in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite good pleasure, 
allowed something even more wonderful to happen. Because just as he allowed Adam to bring about condemnation into the world, he allowed one man, the last Adam, the greater than Adam, Jesus Christ, to bring justification into the world. Just as though I am now a sinner because of one man, I can now be justified because of one man. In other words, it's not up to me. It's not my doing that makes me right with God. It's Jesus Christ that makes me right with God now. Jesus does the work. Adam brought death. Jesus brings life. You are either having Adam as your representative or you have Jesus. You're either in Adam or you're in Jesus. One brings condemnation. The other brings justification. That's good news for us here today. That we no longer have to remain in Adam. We can be in Christ where he becomes the first fruits of resurrection hope of life forevermore. And it's in Christ that we experience that life. Now when it says in verse 22 that all will be made alive, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to receive salvation. As some teach today in a universal salvation where God just saves everybody because God's a God of love. Oh, that would be wonderful. I would love it. He's offered salvation to all, but not all are going to be saved. Those who are in Christ will, but those who refuse Christ's gift of salvation will still be raised up, but they're going to be raised up to receive their eternal body and then be sentenced to eternal punishment. That's not great news to hear. That's not comforting to hear. But that's why we bring the good news as Paul has laid out for us in this chapter that Christ has died for our sins. He's paid the penalty. He was buried, but he rose again, securing life for all who are now in Christ. Christ becomes the first fruits. It's all in that right order, as Paul says. Each one, in verse 23, in his own order. And then comes the end, he says. That's going to come after the millennial reign of Christ. That thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. After this, all those that have died without faith in Jesus throughout history will be raised up to receive their sentence. Sadly, they're going to be sentenced in the lake of fire. But we continue on in life, which is in the new heaven and new earth. The resurrection is a blessed hope to those who are in Christ. And then at that point, it says that the last enemy will be destroyed, and that is death. Jesus is going to hand over everything to his Father, new heaven and new earth, like I said. So at this time, the death is going to be defeated. There will be no more sin, no more disease, no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. We continue on, life everlasting. We will live forever because of the reality and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way back in the choir to, to come and we're going to continue to sing and worship and praise our awesome risen Savior. But I want you to understand something. The death of Jesus was not a defeat of Jesus. It was a defeat of death. He had conquered sin and the grave. It no longer has a hold against those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The question is, are you in Christ today? Have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? You no longer have to go through this world wondering, what's going to become of me after I die? What's going to happen? What, what does the afterlife look like? Nobody has to have those questions when you are in Christ because you know he's become your first fruits. He's become the one that is, has paved the way. He's been resurrected to a new body 
fit for eternity, and we too will be given a new body where we will live forever with Him. Do you know that assurance today? Whether you're watching online, whether you're in the overflow, whether you're in the sanctuary, if you don't have that assurance today, and that hope of heaven, not an uncertainty, but a certain hope of heaven, I encourage you, receive Jesus today as your Lord and Savior. All you need to do is simply pray a little prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner and I'm in need of saving. Would you come and forgive me of my sin? I believe you died on a cross. You're buried. You rose again to secure life and salvation for me. And thank you that you've done it all by your grace. I receive that for myself today. I want to live for you. And I want your life to be my life. Come into my life now, Jesus. Amen. You pray a prayer like that. The Bible says you become born again, a, a child of God. If you prayed that today for the first time, would you come and talk to me, one of our pastors here, or if you're watching online, email us at the church. We'd love to share more with you and uh, just get you connected in this new relationship with God that Jesus provides for us. So I want to close with the end of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He's done it all for us. Amen.